Knots podcast, we discuss things we found on the internet. This is number three in the Found on the Internet series. What does that mean? That is, we find blog posts and tweets and news articles and other topics that we feel are going to be interesting to you nice people, and then we talk about them. In this episode, container adoption, storage, network topologies, PowerShell, and so very much more to delight and amaze. Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who microchips every plane seat he sits in. Just you and me chatting today. There's this article that's been kind of bothering me. Uh, it was on Container Journal from uh, back in September 22nd, 2017. Wait, you were bothered by a, a container article? Like, are you on the couch right now? A container this... journal. Okay. Okay. All right. Show me on the doll where it bothered you. <laughs> the title is Microsoft says to embrace containers or you're going to face extinction is the is the thrust of the article. And let, let's give some quotes here so you got some context. Miguel Caldas, principal technology evangelist at Microsoft Portugal, says that no matter how developers accomplish the goal of, of moving to containers, it, it's critical that they gain experience with them. And he also asserted that organizations that don't adopt containers as the fundamental unit of work for building applications will find themselves going extinct in a few short years. Very dramatic, very dramatic. And then the guy that wrote the article, Mike Vizard, he theorizes that IT professionals would be well advised to make sure containers are on the corporate IT agenda. Organizations that depend on monolithic applications will find themselves being outmaneuvered by more nimble rivals. It just all sounded so dramatic to me, like the end of the world is coming if you don't hurry up and adopt containers, you know, right now and just make it like this huge priority internally. But I don't see that as reality yet. To me, containers are still like, dude, we don't even know how to do containers yet. We're still figuring it out. Why is it that all of a sudden we're all going out of business unless we're on a container-based infrastructure? Well, I mean, you found that on containerjournal.com, so (laughs) that (laughs) – but at the same time, okay, so obviously we need to create a sense of imperative action that something needs to be done. And so I feel like, yes, it is a, a bit sensationalized, I suppose. But at the same time, I, I work with a number of organizations in the mid to large enterprise space, and they're all using containers on the developer side. Uh, I think the delineation that we are trying to make as ops folks is, are we talking about containers as a production platform for running? Workloads, which I, I don't feel like this article is really talking about. It's more, are we going to use this to build and to make building easy because developers love using containers to do builds? And I, I get it. I've used them enough via the Docker flavor that that makes sense to me. Well, in fairness, though, I mean, the article was reporting on Microsoft's take on it. And of course, Microsoft's gotten very big on containers, on integrating with Docker and so on. You know, so I mean, the, the major premise of the article was that Microsoft is sending this message that you must go down the container road. Now, you were just at Ignite, what, like two weeks ago. Did you get much container messaging coming out of the conference? I didn't get a container-specific message because, honestly, that would be a bit old for a trade show of that magnitude to, you know, oh, containers, they're amazing. Because realistically, they were trying to push more around Azure and Azure Stack. Yeah. And I feel like what can be done to link cloud to on-prem that said, there was certainly a number of demos done in the technical keynote. You know, they have multiple keynotes on the day one. Uh, and the technical keynote showed, I think, a Docker container that had SQL running it and how easy that could be. 
And that was certainly an example of how they're trying to make their applications really easy on a container platform, which it kind of you read between the lines. It makes sense. It's it's quick and easy and typically standing these things up for a developer. They don't need a long-lived, well-maintained database. They need something to stand up, throw some data into it that, that's already existing, try something and throw it away for their pipeline. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. But yes, a bit sensationalized for sure. Which leads me into the next thing that I found, cloudfoundry.org. They did a container report for 2017. This was a follow-up to a container report they did in 2016 where they talk about adoption and how enterprises are in the real world based on their survey and the people that they talked to and the enterprises that they queried, where are we at with container adoption? And so just a few select quotes from here to set some context so we can talk some more. Quote, steady growth in interest of containers, but actual adoption of containers has still failed to take off according to the data they gathered. Again, this is Cloud Foundry. Most companies' container adoption remains in the early or limited stages. Continuing, there have been no dramatic increase in broad deployment of containers by companies over the past year. In other words, it's not that they aren't adopting containers, it's just that there's been no big increase between 2016 and 2017. And they get into why. Why is this? What's changed? And it's, or what's the problem that is a stalling container adoption? Quote, the challenge of container management is real. And the more you adopt them, the more you realize this. As enterprises have begun to adopt containers, the discussion is shifting from why containers to, which Chris, as you've already outlined, yeah, everybody kind of knows why containers, but now it's how containers. This how conversation drives large scale adoption as organizations move forward. So, right, it's not so much that containers, it's like we don't understand what the value proposition for containers are. It's more that, you know, I've got these stupid things. How do I manage them? Which uh, maybe is a a way more interesting question. And I, I think you could break that up into two parts of it. Parts of it is, I think, the ops question. I was talking to uh, Rob Hirschfeld at RackN over at the Gartner CIO Symposium a while back, and his company is all about doing bare metal provisioning. And I, I think most of the customers are typically trying to do container hosts on the bare metal, you know, setting up large-scale container hosts. So there's even a challenge at kind of the ops bare metal you know, hosting level, and that's something that we've traditionally not had to deal with, or we have kind of snowflake deployments with virtualization layer where we hand-build the hypervisor because typically it doesn't need to be done a second time, whereas container host I think is a little bit different. So there's kind of the, the physical layer or the, you know, the, the underlay, so to speak. But then there's also the world of Kubernetes. You know, that's, it's largely, from what I've seen on the Twitters, is making the heartburn for Docker a little bit stronger every day. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of commoditizing what they bring to market with Docker Data Center and Docker Swarm. But it's that layer. It, and to me, the problem is that world of container management lags so far behind what we have in virtualization management. Because largely it's just, you know, here's a set of tags or profile information on what the container needs. The scheduler then picks a container host with no real thought as to resource management. And that's not a production-ready deployment in most cases from what I can tell. Yeah, and, and what you're saying there, particularly highlighting the lack of maturity of container orchestration tools versus virtualization uh, management tools, it kind of leads us into a closing quote that I pulled out of that Cloud Foundry report where they say, overall, the data points to a trend of increasing interest in containers. Anecdote might lead us to believe that the world already runs on containers, but the reality remains enterprises continue to lag behind. Increasingly, though, orchestration tools are not the problem. Companies have more mature options than ever before with a particular interest in 
Kubernetes. And I don't know what I think about this because I, I have more mature options than ever because everything that I've been reading, if you try to take Kubernetes by yourself, I don't know anybody that just takes Kubernetes on its own unless you're a very particular kind of large company with a lot of developers that can work on it and make it do what you need it to do in your environment. Most people are looking at Red Hat OpenShift or some other kind of solution that's got Kubernetes under the hood, but it's been massaged and made more manageable and easier to wrap your brains around and then apply to a production environment. So Kubernetes is, as you put it, giving Docker heartburn increasingly every day and does seem to be the answer, but I don't know that I'd call it mature by any means. And I think it's still a challenge for organizations to be adopting containers for this reason. Yeah, and I'll bring up Kelsey Hightower as the Kubernetes the hard way repo on GitHub and I have the link in there and it it literally says it's a tutorial for setting it up the hard way. You know, it's not for a fully automated command that just sets it up. It's for someone that wants to deep dive into that. I think it was recently updated to support Kubernetes 1.8, if you go in there. But you look at the other details in the cluster to, to bootstrap it and the other components, it's like, you know, the container runtime is 1.0 alpha, the container networking 0.6, you know, etcd is 3.2.8. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of newer 1.0 or less than 1.0 type things in there. And even, even K8S is at 1.8 or so. So it's just... It's new, and I think as people work through it and figure it out and get it to the level where it's able to handle more intelligent decision-making rather than just kind of contextual decision-making, it'll probably gain some more steam. Now, speaking of uh, Kelsey Hightower and Kubernetes, well, the book Kubernetes Up and Running is out. I had pre-ordered it. I've got my copy. I haven't had a chance to read through it all yet. I've thumbed through it extensively, but haven't actually sat down and read it and started doing exercises yet. But that book is by... Not just Kelsey Hightower, but also Brendan Burns and Joe Beta. These guys are all Google employees at uh, at this point in time. And, of course, we know Kelsey. Outspoken. Surprise, surprise. Kubernetes. Yeah, right. surprise, surprise, right? I mean, Kelsey's been talking about Kubernetes for a, a long time. Uh, lots of videos on YouTube of him presenting in detail how to do interesting things with Kubernetes. And Brendan and Joe are creators of uh, the project back in the day from what I read in the credits of the book. So if you're interested in this book, it is a short book, O'Reilly Press, 181 pages, including the index. That's all. So you get this thing expecting maybe this big whacking tome. No, it's an up and running book. It's not massive. And they don't assume that you've got Kubernetes experience, but they do expect that you're comfortable building and deploying server-based apps, which most people listening to the show would be. And if you know a bit about load balancing and network storage, the book says that that's going to help, but it's not required either. And then the last thing they recommend, if you know something about Linux, Linux containers, and Docker, that's also going to help you out, but again, not strictly required. And if you start thumbing through the book and look at the chapters, you get a chapter of why, and then the rest is how, as far as how, if you're thinking about how would I build a Kubernetes lab, because you're going to need to do hands-on for this book. That is very clear. This isn't a book where you just sit and read and go, ah, that was lovely. You actually have to get your hands in and do work to make the most of a book like this. And so they talk about how you, how you would do that. So you could deploy Kubernetes in the public cloud, or you could do it locally on, on a machine with a Minikube, although there's Kube, a Minikube. Anyway, there are shortcomings to that approach if you try to do it all in one. It, it works, but it's not the, the full experience with multiple instances and so on working together. They do have in an appendix how to do it on a Raspberry Pi, where they've got all, the whole appendix is dedicated to building out a four-node Raspberry Pi Kubernetes cluster 
with an option for I think three nodes if uh, if you want trying to save a few bucks. And I think you could do the whole thing based on pricing they had when they released the book for like three hundred bucks. You can have a four node Raspberry Pi three based Kubernetes cluster. They just walk through all the fundamental things you need to know and set up in Kubernetes. Commands, pods, labels, service discovery, replica sets, daemon sets, jobs, config maps and secrets, deployments, integrating storage and deploying actual real-world applications that get in with Redis at the very end, I believe. Again, I've just got the thing. I haven't really had the time to get into it yet, but that is where I'm headed and try to get a better handle on Kubernetes and exactly how it works and what it does. So I don't, <laughs> does a book like that interest you, Chris? Yeah, I think I already own it. Actually, oh, you got it too. Okay, yeah, I think I'm a, a little bit into it because also at the same time, Orson's got card some new new stuff recently, and sci-fi is always my jam. When I was looking at the author details, I, I, one thing that stood out that I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the little errata that comes out. Uh, Joe Beta or Beta, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Worked at Google. He's at Heptio now. Worked at Google, but prior to that, at Microsoft, and uh, he he self explains that he worked on Internet Explorer during the browser wars. Parentheses. Don't hate him. It makes for good discussions over drinks. So <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. It's that's a good like I'm proud of it at the same time. Tell ask me more because there there's some certain shame to that. Poor IE. It's become like the joke of the internet. But sure, not everything needs to be five hundred pages super deep dive. I think getting it up and running is a challenge for a lot of folks. So that's why I bought the book. Hey there! Each week, we put together a show focused on the amazing world of enterprise data centers and their constant challenges to tens of thousands of snazzy listeners. But hey, we're just scratching the surface. So vendors, send an email to sponsors at packetpushers.net for information on how you can build a quality, informative, and fun sponsored show with us, the Datadots Podcast Crew. Again, that's sponsors at packetpushers.net. Chris, I found a blog post by Niels Haggard. Wasn't he one of the ones that was on the show about the uh, – wasn't that the VMware resource management show? Was that him? You were an elephant. You never forget. Uh, okay. Yeah, him and Frank Deniman wrote the uh, the Host Deep Dive book for uh, getting really down and dirty into scheduling and NUMA and other gritty details to hypervisor management. Kind of like how servers are put together and how they compute what they compute. Well, he published this short blog post about what a distributed storage network topology should look like. So if you think about distributed storage, what are we talking about? A storage system where the physical disk is spread across the data center, um, you know, a, a bit of spindle in this host and a bit of spindle in this host and a bit of spindle in this host, and all of that storage works as one big system. So if that's how you're doing your storage, in other words, it's not like dedicated with its own storage area network and, you know, arrays, you know, kind of the old school way. You're doing this more modern distributed way like like vSAN would be or DriveScale, uh, that company would fit into that world. What should the underlying network topology look like? It's not a long article at all. The long and the short of it is he says leaf spine. You know, he makes the point that Ethernet networks that need to scale out and need to be able to add on a bunch of hosts but still have predictable performance characteristics have gone to leaf spine it's been that that's been kind of the standard reference architecture for a data center for several years now and that hasn't really changed except for how to scale them even bigger where you get from three leaf to five layer to seven and so on depending on how many access ports you're trying to have face the network he just makes the point that hey you want your storage performance to be consistent no matter where those hosts are plugged in 
And what's a way to get that? Leaf spine. And we did a whole show on leaf spine architectures, gosh, a lot of shows ago, Chris, we talked about that. So to quote Niels, he says, such a network topology provides a predictable latency, thus consistent performance, even though you keep scaling out your virtual data center. It is the consistency in performance that makes the spine leaf network architecture so suitable for distributed storage solutions. So, Chris, I got a question for you. You make fun of me all the time as being the network guy, and that's no. that's what I that's that's my no. cross to bear. But in all seriousness, I mean, if you're thinking about a distributed storage architecture like a vSAN, what is a typical network deployment that you've seen? Do people actually put a lot of thought into it, or are people just kind of like I'm standing up nodes, woo, and then hoping for the best? I think it depends if you are retrofitting a cluster to have vSAN. Or in the same vein, if you just bought servers that happen to have disk inside of them and you're like, well, I don't need these because it's a VMware server and you just don't use them and you're just activating them. Such as my original lab, or our corporate lab, had no vSAN. And then we went and added the flash drives and the spinning drives to enable vSAN. So that's number one. On a different hand, if you're going to design a completely new virtual data center, I would imagine you might have this conversation. But at the same time, I don't know. You'd have to be a pretty big scale where perhaps doing this might be advantageous because most data centers, I feel like, are just designed (laughs) with end of row, top of rack architectures. They're not like to to say, okay, we're putting in vSAN. Let's completely rip out our network topology and put in leaf spine. I I mean, maybe a a smaller deployment just for the environment if we're talking 16 or 30 hosts or something pretty beefy. I don't know. I think you'd have to be so big and also so small. I mean, for the, for those smaller data centers where you're doing top of rack, end of row, and there's just not that many rows that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, how big of a concern is that if you've got properly provisioned bandwidth and you're getting that predictable latency characteristic from node to node, maybe that's fine. But to quote Niels again, very near the end of his, uh, again, pretty short to the point blog article, he says, Make sure that when you're in the process of designing, in other words, we're doing Greenfield here, designing a scalable data center using distributed services to design your network accordingly, it could make sense to introduce a spine leaf network from starters if you anticipate substantial future growth for your virtual data center. So, right, I guess how big are you going to get is yet another question. Yeah, that's the key. It's, It's really, it's about the scalability. I feel like you can have deterministic latency and deterministic performance, even without leaf spine, at a certain size. It's when you try to take a three-tier architecture and you're just expanding the core or even the, the DISTI, you know, whatever we're calling that middle layer these days, and you're adding more hops. That's when, that's when things start to suck. <laughs> but when you're <laughs> talking, you know, 20 hosts or 10 hosts or something relatively small, I don't think this has a material impact on the design. And, and again, I think that the, the underlining key to that sentence is when you start to introduce growth or scale or you know, you're looking to span out the environment – that means that you're always going to have deterministic latency and you can grow to any size you want. That's the joke about what you would consider small. I mean, uh, for you can have a pair of Ethernet switches that have so much bandwidth in them that a fairly sizable data center from a standpoint of virtual machines where you could be running hundreds or maybe even thousands of virtual machines could be running through a pair of switches and they're not working that hard, all depending on the nature of the workloads and so on. But there's so much bandwidth now in, in non-blocking switches that you can get for pretty short money. Why would you build out a massive leaf spine architecture just with a top of rack switch in every rack and, and so on? Do you actually even need to do that for a lot? And for a lot of shops, I think the answer is 
No, you don't. If you actually sit down and do the math and see what your traffic loads are. So a very simplistic network architecture can maybe give you, deliver these same sort of performance characteristics that you're looking for. And it's only when you get into a lot of rows and a lot of hosts and a lot of port density required that you need to start thinking about things like leaf spine. So Chris, so let's move on to a related article that we discovered on nextplatform.com, the ascendancy of Ethernet storage fabrics. So whereas Neil's article was very short and to the point, this ascendancy of Ethernet storage fabrics article is very long. It's got history. It's got diagrams. It's it's massive. I mean, it's it's like a long white paper reading through this thing. But there is so much good information if you get through this thing where the author, Timothy Prickett Morgan, talks through all the different requirements that an enterprise has uh, and has had for storage through time and then what that looks like today. So as you wind down towards the bottom of the piece, probably several thousand words in, he gets into, here's a quote, back in the day when fiber channel was new, a disk drive had an access time of maybe 10 milliseconds. And today the fastest disk drives two decades later are maybe around seven milliseconds. In other words, we haven't improved a whole lot. Well, why? That is just the limit of a physical device that has mechanical rather than electrical access. And and he's winding up to something here because he's making the point that with modern SSDs and then coming up soon with uh, NVMe, the access times have changed dramatically and the amount of data you can push across the network is different, which demands a very specific sort of storage fabric architecture. So to quote Timothy again, by contrast, a flash-based SSD is an access time in the order of 100 microseconds. Microseconds. We went from 7 milliseconds to 100 microseconds. And looking forward, there are low-latency SSDs and persistent memory and NVDIMMs that offer access times below 10 microseconds, and the envelope is pushing down to under 1 microsecond. And now that we're talking single-digit microseconds, you're getting into port-to-port latency on Ethernet switches where uh, a packet goes in and a packet goes out. How long does it take to go port-to-port? Well, you me- on the best switches, you're measuring those in nanoseconds now, hundreds of nanoseconds probably, but you know, a microsecond for a storage access time is really changing the game. I don't know how quickly folks are adopting newer storage that can go that quickly, but with Ethernet at 100 gig per second today, going back to quoting Timothy, and on track for 200 gig and 400 gig per second, and perhaps hitting 1.6 terabits per second early in the next decade. Yeah, we'll see about that. Maybe. Um, but anyway, the odds are that fiber channel is going to lag just as it does today. Only now is 32 gig per second fiber channel coming to market, which is weird. It used to be like like the fiber channel was the, the gold standard. And Ethernet just sucked compared to fiber channel. And so everybody built their SANS because they could trust fiber channel. Wow, it was amazing. You know, and Ethernet was like... Yeah, if you can put your crappy iSCSI in that, whatever, leave me alone. I'm going to go do real work here with my SAN. Now it's just fiber channels not keeping up. Again, to quote Timothy one, one last time, if you use NVMe over fabrics on top of Ethernet switching, this only adds around 10 microseconds of additional latency over running an SSD local in the chassis. So even when an NVMe Express comes to fiber channel, which is still great for those deploying SANs, the combination of Ethernet and software-defined storage running on server nodes will have a big advantage. Which goes back to our show with Howard Marks. We talked about does data locality really matter? Howard made that point that if you look at how much latency is actually being added by the network, it's not as big of a factor as you would think. You're not going to surprise me, Ethan, by telling me that fiber channel is dying. I mean, that's just (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> this is still really making billions, flash. but it's dying. I think this yeah. is, well, you know, it's 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 something where you have to ask total addressable market, obviously shrinking, but also net new projects, you know, or expansion of current projects. There's a certain market where, yes, they're investing in this. There might even be a Kager that's trending positive for a, a piece of time. I haven't really kept on it on a day to day basis. I think you're going to hit that point, though, that, as you mentioned, with Ethernet just continuing to drive forward when it comes to speeds, Fiber Channel not doing it, it's really chasing the money from a vendor perspective. And as things get more expensive, less quick, you know, from a speed perspective, it's not going to be, you know, very palatable to go after FC. Honestly, I don't think I don't think a lot of people are really thinking about milliseconds of seek time and that kind of jazz because largely the rotational media world, while there's there's still disks being sold and installed and stuff like that, most of them are either behind an SSD or yeah. an all flash arrays being input yep, yep, anyways. Yep. Even just hearing seek time, I'm like, all right, or, or access time, I'm thinking, all right, seek time plus the latency to go at, you know, go at the data, that's access time. And that's even assuming completely random data with no sequential access. So even that kind of made me kind of roll my eyes just a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, think we all, I think we all know that Fiber Channel is on the way. No, no one really wants to deploy a brand new FC SAN at a measly 16 gig maybe. A lot of them that I was working with still 4 or 8 gigabit versus 10 minimum. Like to me, 10, the only way, place I don't have 10 is at home, 10 gigabit Ethernet. Everywhere else I have 10. And uh, I'm jazzed up about 25. I'm not really in the 40 gig market. I'm more of a 25, 50 kind of guy. Uh, so that that seems uh, kind of obvious, but also reassuring. Well, as a preview for another show we're doing, we've got scheduled uh, Jay Metz from Cisco to talk about NVMe over Ethernet and what that looks like to the network because the speed and the IOPS that you get out of that sort of storage media and what that will do to storage fabrics is a pretty interesting conversation he and i have been chatting about through email and kind of you know pondering that so we're gonna we're gonna do a data knots episode about that because uh, 10 and 25 gig ethernet nvme can bury that no problem because they've been doing tests and nvme can bury 100 gig ethernet with i think just two drive interfaces i believe can saturate that so it's really complicating the game and right fiber channels not even a discussion right now for, for anybody that's considering this sort of technology. Okay, we've heard enough of Ethan geeking out over old storage technologies and <laughs> Ethernet's and things. So, like, I, I hate you so much right now. I'm going to take a little bit different direction just for my, my nerdy brethren. A couple updates that I've been following. Obviously, um, PowerShell version 6 is something I talked about on the show with Jeffrey Snover while I was at Ignite. Beta 8 has come out recently, which is kind of cool because typically there's been a new beta every month. And this, I think, released after maybe eight or nine days after the beta 7. So if you're looking at PowerShell Core, which is ultimately going to be where Microsoft's investing all of their time and energy from a PowerShell perspective, to be clear, 5.1 which is the kind of Windows version of PowerShell, is not going away. But if you want the cross-platform, open-sourced version of PowerShell, which is core, running on .NET standard, you know, as far as interfacing with the uh, various flavors of .NET, you'll want version 6, and beta 8 is out that you can grab and install on Mac, Linux, or Windows. Welcome to do that. And that's at github.com slash PowerShell slash PowerShell again, because <laughs> the organization is PowerShell and the project is named PowerShell. In that same vein, when we talked about in the Ask Me Anything episode, I, I mentioned my love for Visual Studio Code, which is the free, lightweight, awesome version of Visual Studio, not the 35 gigabyte installer 
gorilla that we're all used to and never ever want to use version 1.17 came out and the neat thing about the releases that i found with visual studio code the release notes are very verbose they use animated graphics to showcase every single new feature there's a lot of intel as far as what's going on why you would use it where it's at in the product and i kind of bring this up because in a i think dot 15 or dot 16 they actually remove the giant banner that says there's a new update it's now hidden in the bottom left little config wheel so when you upgraded that, it's it's a lot less intrusive. It used to be very much in your face, which was annoying. So make sure to, to keep that up to date because it's awesome. The thing that I wanted to bring up and kind of chew on with you, Ethan, was a, a great tweet that I saw from John Allspaw where he talks about the blame cycle. Uh, he had a great name, blame, shame link that he brought out. And I'll just bring up the high level of it is, you know, you're an engineer, architect, admin, whatever. You you take some kind of action, and that contributes to a failure, an incident, a problem. You know, like you made a mistake, and we've all done that. You're then punished or shamed or or blamed, or you're on the triage call, and you know you need to be retrained and all that other BS. This has a pretty negative kind of connotation because a, the trust between you and other engineers, which they call the sharp end, is is reduced. Like your your fellow engineers, like wow. Chris, way to screw everything up, man. This guy, he's, he's harming, you know, do no harm. This guy's screwing things up. And then the management or the blunt end is looking for a scapegoat. It's like, your day sucks. And therefore, the result is that you're going to become silent. You don't want to give details on an action that you've done, a situation that you're involved with, an observation that you have around something coming, you know, down the pike or, or an environment you're with, which results in CYA engineering, you know, cover your butt because there's fear. Right. And that's that's a pretty horrible thing, which means if you're in management and and you're seeing this going on, what what happens to you? Well, we've already talked about the engineer like that world sucks. But if you're managing a team like this or you're even higher in the stack, you're less aware of what's going on. The information flow of what should be coming to you on the work being performed day to day on, you know, what's going on. The fact the engineers are less educated. There's more lurking or latent conditions of failure because of the silence. This is all bad for you, too. Uh, you may feel good because you found a scapegoat. Well, now we know who the problem was. It was this guy. And I bring that up because the Equifax hearing basically said, well, it's this one guy didn't patch the vulnerability that they discovered. It was this one guy decided not to do it. And therefore, all of the problems for the entire company is Bob, you know, this fictional character <laughs> named Bob. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, the result is errors are more likely. Issues and conditions can't be identified. And you loop because then... As you continue witch hunting to engineers, you know, you go through the cycle where you don't find errors because no one's willing to tell you where the errors are. Uh, so a blameless approach to engineering, I, th I think, and I'd love to you to weigh in on this, Ethan, because I know you, you've actually been in IT longer than me, but uh, is that um, it's bad jokes, for the engineer, yeah. but it's also bad for management. Like if you're if you're trying to sell this as a management style, your life sucks, too. It's both directions go to increase on the suck scale. So that, that was kind of my rant slash education for the moment. Yeah, I mean, first of all, good luck to Equifax ever hiring a competent engineer again. You know, if you've got any people that are good people staying behind, you're lucky. They're probably all looking because no one wants to be put in that situation because, Chris, you put it perfectly. I don't care how good of an engineer you are. We've all made mistakes. We've all screwed up. We've all fat fingered something, tripped on the power switch, whatever it is. We've made those mistakes. And then... What you need at that point is 
a manager or management that is supportive and recognizes that this is problematic. So uh, Packet Pushes, we did a, a show on uh, one of our other podcast channels, our, our main weekly show, show 357. We talked about this at length beyond name, blame, and shame in IT. We get right into it with what that culture is like. And I identify exactly with this cycle here, the cycle of name, blame, shame. And it ends up being very bad for the organization. I've worked in both kinds. I've worked in shops where don't make a mistake because you're going to get you know embarrassed, shamed, et cetera, for it. And I've worked in shops where it's been like, yeah, people make mistakes. Don't go out of your way to make mistakes. But if you do, no, we're not going to throw you under the bus. We're going to do a postmortem, figure out what happened, and then put a system in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it's not going to be a witch hunt. It's not going to be about we got to blame somebody. It's going to be about improvement. It's going to be as organizationally getting better so that we don't do that, make that same mistake again. It's not a personal thing. If you're a manager that defends <laughs> your staff when they make a mistake, you will breed loyalty and trust. And the things you need to know are going to get brought to your attention because you know you're not going to get your head bitten off. If you are a manager who goes the other way and is like, you did what? And then it's, you know, all hell breaks loose. You're Again, exactly like the, the cycle from John's tweet says, you're never going to hear the kind of information you want because everyone's going to do their best to stay off your radar and stay flying low, quiet at their cubicle, doing the least amount possible and trying not to do anything that would be considered risky or controversial in any way. And your organization is just going to be mired in the past forever because no one's ever going to do anything that would risk making a change or that would put yeah. themselves out there, expose them to potential failure that they're going to get blamed for. Because who wants that? You know, nobody wants that. Well, I, I included the link. I mean, the, the article is actually five years old, but very relevant. John Oswald wrote it back in May of 2012. It's called Blameless Post Postmortems and a Just Culture. Kind of the TLDR is the companies he's worked for, including Etsy, view mistakes, errors, slips, lapses, et cetera, with the perspective of learning. And, and obviously with learning, you know, if you stay, make the same mistake multiple times, you're not learning and therefore but corrective action learn. should be taken. <laughs> Maybe we don't need to learn every day. It's not carte blanche. Screw everything up. Take the sand out. I just want to know what would happen if I put an axe through the front of the server. <laughs> I puzzle. learned so much when the whole data center went down again. And I've learned that activating the FM200 system is bad. You know, like, <laughs> those are things you learn. At any rate, uh, if you read one thing from the show, I, I, I loved this article. I feel like it helps energize and motivate me. And perhaps if you can spread a little bit of this and get your team on board, uh, if you've got a crappy boss, you know, maybe you can push this through and say, this is how we want to operate or else we're all going to, uh, uh, I don't know, play video games during the day or, or whatever leverage you have, do it. So blameless postmortems. The other thing was this great talk from uh, the Australian Python conference, PyCon. It sounds weird, right? If you don't know Python, that's fine. It, it doesn't really have anything to do with Python. Uh, it's called How to Handle Abandoned Projects, Take Two. So it was, it was a second, second kind of series or second piece done by Katie McLaughlin. And she's awesome. I, I love her content. And I've got a link to the YouTube in there. But basically, it goes all about, okay, I want to open source stuff. It's, it's all the rage. I want to GitHubs. I want to GitHub all the things. Uh, and I want to make these things available. But... Maybe I don't want to start from scratch. I saw this really cool project. I was using it for a while. Oh, no, the maintainer has left. They pieced out. How do you handle that? Also, from the perspective of a maintainer, what do you do when you're tired of something? 
And there's lots of great nuggets of intel in there. A, a couple pieces, you know, if you're looking to potentially pass the torch, update the readme. Make it very, very clear what this does. Try to add a lot of documentation and officially pass the torch. Now, the reason this kind of resonated with me and the reason I wanted to share with all of you all was uh, I was, I guess, the the initial creator of a project called Vester to do lab management for vSphere. And I've since passed it on to someone else. I, I don't do it day to day anymore. And I tried to make it as easy as possible for that person. And now there's like 75 people that are involved with it day to day. And it's really grown legs because I was in the critical path. I was the constraint. I didn't have the time. So, man, I really wish I had watched this video. I would have done things way differently and, and probably better and made it easier on them. Uh, and the other one was... Um, Remember to use licensing in your repository on GitHub. Uh, it's a common rookie mistake to not put a license in there. It actually asks you when you instantiate the repo, hey, put a license in there. You know, what do you want? It, it offers the MIT license and the Apache V2 license, things like that. If you didn't know this, if there's no license in the GitHub repo at all, then you can't legally use the code in the repo. It means you can't use any of it. You can look at it. That's great. But it's not legally usable. And you'll actually see various people that do a pull request. You mean pe people can store things and still use it for version control and whatever, but some third party that wants to use that code can't because you didn't bother to assign a license to your code? Good clarification. Yes. You personally can use it because it's your code. No one else in the world can use your stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Legally, they, can, they can't download it, touch it, use it, nothing, uh, because there's no license, which means completely off limits. Uh, so put a put a license in there, please. There's a button that that says add license and you can choose the license you want. There's actually a fancy little uh, wizard that GitHub provides that shows you like in plain English what these licenses mean and who can use it and what the attribution is. So uh, put the MIT license in or the Apache one, whatever, uh, just so people can use it. Because if, if someone's in a government agency or something like that, you'll see a PR, a pull request saying, I would love to use your stuff. Please add a license. Uh, the other one I wanted to, to bring up to to the folks on the on the show as well as to Ethan, maybe he'll come with me this time. The PowerShell DevOps Summit for 2018, we had a show on that because I loved it so much, is coming back, I think, April of next year. Registration opens the 1st of November, so a couple weeks from when we're recording this. Highly recommend. Are you going to go and learn PowerShell or are you still stuck with your Python garbage there, Ethan? <sighs> Where is this summit? Is it on the West Coast where everything else is? Uh, yeah. Why would Why would it not? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens in New Hampshire, man. It's uh it's in Bellevue. It's right by it's right by the most awesome company in the world, Microsoft. And it's it's early to mid April. So if you get the chance, I think it's fifteen hundred bucks for full price and there's there's limited tickets for like less price. And if you've been before, there there's there's a, a smaller price and things like that. There's there's ways you can get there for cheaper. There's something like ninety hours of content. I don't know. This is this is my favorite event. I've only been once. I plan to go again. All I'll say is maybe I got some courses that I'm developing that I got to get a lot of video uh, shot and other things written. And if I'm done and I've got time, maybe I'll put my butt on a plane. We'll see how it goes. Two other things I wanted to, to share with the uh, the listeners here. One was um, at Star West. There was this really awesome presentation. I can't say her name. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. It's like Marit. Marit. Anyways, the link's in there. She's got a slide share of a presentation called Make Your Team Awesome. Yes, you can. And I love the takeaways here. It's just like a popcorn bag filled with little gold kernels of awesome. Uh, one of them was uh, testers don't break the code. They break your illusions about the code. Uh, so if you, <laughs> you want to go through, I recommend check out the deck 
and look at these little nuggets. I think there's a video as well that I, I just wasn't able to find in time for the show. But she has a great perspective on dealing with crappy code, being a tester. And I, I bring this up because I feel like as ops people, we're all testers all the time because we're typically not writing the code. We're typically being asked to install, configure, manage, maintain, do the lifecycle uh, cradle to grave handling of the application. And we're the ones that are finding all these goofy things. And this kind of goes into some of the depth about learning about how to deal with performance and dealing with code and, and learning about testing and things like that. It's just it was just good. It's a little bit off the it's a little bit off the normal reservation of the things that we talk about here. I recommend that. The last one was great because I'll open it with the fact that it's serverless conf. And this year, the a cloud guru gentleman, who I, I think most people on the show have at least heard of with the training courses that are awesome, uh, has a shirt. There is no serverless. It's just someone else's fully managed execution environment that I only pay a fraction of a cent for whenever my function is run. <laughs> so if you've been snarky about the there is no serverless, it's just someone else's computer. This is an alternative explanation. It's on a T-shirt for the... You know, I guess the, the worldwide tour of serverless conf, this one was in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Awesome. And so what, I, what I'm going to bring up, uh, other than this fun, snarky t-shirt, was that the folks over at Wikibon and SiliconANGLE do a show called The Cube, of which uh, I think, I, I know I've been on it a few times, Ethan, I, I don't know if you've... Yeah, I've been on it as well, yeah. You've been on it as well, there we go, we're, we're Cube alumni. These guys are great because they really take everybody and talk to them, not just the paid sponsor type people, but community members and, and technical folks and engineers and things like that. They've actually, I've got a link in here to the cubes serverless conf 2017 coverage. Me personally, just to, to share how I work a little bit. Uh, I love watching these things. Uh, I'm not being paid to say that or anything. I just like the interviews uh, and I like hearing what these kind of industry leaders and community members and engineers and techies and venture capitalists and stuff have to say. And by the time you listen to this, the videos for Serverless Conf should be out. I was just kind of watching them real time and, and watching Twitter on that. So I've had my eyeball on Serverless Conf for a while in the serverless space because I think it's interesting, uh, like uh, Azure Functions, as et cetera. You know, there's Lambda and things like yeah. that. There's a lot of good information for, at Serverless Conf. If it's, if it's anything like last year's, I watched a lot of the videos from last year, the event that was held in London, and there was so much good information. I watched at least half of the conference. And uh, was really, really picked up a lot of valuable information. Smart people with a great perspective who've been down in the trenches as this whole world is coming to life. You know, you learn a lot from people who have to figure it out as they go because there is no paved path to this sort of infrastructure. Yeah, and we've we've talked about it in a couple past shows. There's there's a lot of choices of where to do serverless and, and functions. But it's one of the things I'm making kind of a technical bet on, me personally, is that this is going to continue to grow. I guess for one reason, it's fairly straightforward. There's not a lot of friction to get into this world. You can even do it on-prem with Azure Stack. So it's not just a cloud thing. But more, more than that, I feel like the technology isn't really trying to like shove its you know, meaty fist down your throat. You know, It's like, hey, this is a cool way to do stuff. If you like it and it solves the use case, great. It's a lot of education and people are very upfront about all the problems with it. So it's not like this is the, the sugar pill that solves everything. But at the same time, it is cool. And I think there is a lot of great practical applications for it across the use cases and the solutions that you're dealing with. So it's something I'm keeping an eyeball on. All right. Well, let's wrap up this show, my friend. That is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach me at EC Banks on Twitter, my blog 
Hackitpushers.net is where you will find most of my writing these days. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, cannonball into the pool that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, even if Chris thinks some of it's old, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Sorry, I, 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 no I spoke you into oblivion. I just like bludgeoned you with my words. Sorry. <laughs>